This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis. This is episode 36, and this week we are looking at philanthropy, risk and innovation. Um, Before we start, I should just note um, uh, an anniversary of sorts, which is um, that we are on episode 36, and as such, we've now had as many episodes of the podcast as I have spent uh, years on this planet, which is a totally pointless thing to note, but I was quite excited when I just realised that, so I thought I'd share with everyone. Anyway, on with the podcast. So, the issue of uh, innovation and risk, which um, I'm going to tie together for now because I think they're sort of it's difficult to separate them out really, is hugely important to philanthropy. Um, and the reason being, I think it's one of the sort of key ways in which philanthropy and its role within society is often justified to make a case that it is somehow more innovative or more tolerant of risk, certainly than the state or, or the public sector. Um, To give you an example of what I mean by this, I'm just going to start by uh, reading a quote from uh, William Beveridge's 1948 book, Voluntary Action, which I'm sure you've all got open in front of you anyway. Um, But it's a very interesting book if you haven't read it. So Beveridge, as as many people um, will know, was um, essentially the kind of chief architect of the welfare state in the UK. Um, And through the reports that he wrote in uh, the late 30s and early 40s, kind of established the the groundwork for the National Health Service and other elements of the welfare state, and he's primarily known for that. But what fewer people know is that he was also a sort of huge proponent of the value of voluntary action um, and was increasingly concerned, really, that the way in which his views on state provision had been interpreted um, meant that it was put forward as if he thought there was no place left for philanthropy or voluntary provision, which very much wasn't the case. So um, as such, he published this uh, additional volume called Voluntary Action, which sort of outlines his arguments for why he thinks philanthropy and, and voluntary action still has an important role to play in a welfare state. Um, and I'll just read this quote. So he says, Time after time, philanthropy is seen breaking in on official routine, unveiling evils, finding fresh channels for service, getting things done that would not be done for pay. In the face of enormous changes, philanthropy has shown its strength of being able perpetually to take new forms. The capacity of voluntary action inspired by philanthropy to do new things is beyond question. Voluntary action is needed to do things which the state should not do, in the giving of advice or in the organising the use of leisure. It is needed to do things which the state is most unlikely to do. It is needed to pioneer ahead of the state and make experiments. It is needed to get services rendered which cannot be got by paying for them. So this is a, a really good version of the argument, I think, that essentially the kind of the value of philanthropy is largely consists um, in the fact that it is more innovative and able to kind of fill in gaps in state provision, augment them, move things forward by demonstrating new ways of doing things. 
Um, and I want to pick up on each of these various kind of interpretations of innovation um, during the podcast. But first, I just want to, to focus in on the question of risk, because I think immediately, you know, the question of, you know, why is it that philanthropies argued to be more innovative? Well, one of the reasons that's often put forward when you start to press people is that it's more able to tolerate risk. Uh, and what does that mean? Well, risk comes in lots of different forms. Um, and I think, you know, at least some of the ones that are relevant here are financial risk, uh, political risk, outcomes risk or reputational risk. Um, I mean, in terms of financial risk, obviously, traditional philanthropy in the form of donations with no expectation of return is about the highest form of financial risk you can take because you literally aren't going to get that money back. Um, and or we'll come on to uh, a bit later in the podcast the fact that increasingly there are sort of models which try to blend that willingness to tolerate financial risk with more commercial um, uh, models as well. And there's, there's been, you know, that's a kind of long-standing trend that's very interesting. And in terms of things like political or reputational risk, we'll come on to in a moment why that is. But obviously, one of the things I think that it's well known holds back people within the public sector, certainly, is that the mechanisms for accountability and the kind of the blame that they will feel if things go wrong usually enormously outweighs any of the praise that they'll get. I mean, most people, you know, in the public sector don't really get any thanks when they do their job well, whereas if they do anything wrong, they'll be absolutely kind of pilloried and hung out to dry. And that obviously makes people risk averse. Um, I think then it's interesting just to think about outcomes risk. You know, why would philanthropy be more tolerant in terms of the outcomes that it's willing to, to you know, to take risks that they won't be delivered? Well, to some extent, that links into financial risk. I mean, if you're spending your own money rather than taxpayers' money or anyone else's money, you won't be so bothered if that money is essentially wasted. But I guess it raises a sort of interesting question about you know, who it is that suffers, because the assumption that the only person for whom there's risk in a philanthropic um, transaction or some something that is financed by philanthropy is the donor seems misguided to me. I mean, the person who is supposed to be the beneficiary, or if you don't like that sort of language, the, the person kind of who benefits from the, the intervention that's funded by philanthropy will also suffer if that turns out to be the wrong way of doing things or less effective than another way. So I think, you know, it's not just a question of risk on the part of the donor, and I think it's kind of important to acknowledge that. But then in terms of why philanthropy might be better placed to take that sort of risk or these various sorts of risk than other forms of funding, well, one is, you know, frankly, because it's unaccountable, um, or, well, that's probably too strong. It's not accountable to taxpayers or to voters in the way, certainly, that state spending is. And it's not accountable to shareholders in the way that a publicly listed company is. I mean, arguably, private companies have a similar or lower degree of accountability. Um, but that's kind of going to take us off down a rabbit hole. So let's park that for a moment. Um, and actually... Depending on the form of philanthropy you're talking about, the, the level of accountability obviously can vary. So an organisation that has to go out and fundraise, whether that's an operating charity or a kind of grant maker that still fundraises, has a certain quite high degree of accountability to those people who are giving money uh, to that organisation because they believe in its ability to achieve a particular 
uh, outcome or kind of deliver towards a particular cause. Whereas if you are an individual philanthropist or you're an endowed organization, perhaps you have less accountability because there is nobody directly who can lay a claim on that money beyond you um, or you know the organization for which you work. Um, there's another way in which philanthropy might be um, more able to be innovative in terms of risk, and I think that's to do with time scale. So, you know, one of the things that's increasingly noted nowadays is that politics operates on such a short cycle. Um, you know, here in the UK, we now have fixed term parliaments in the US, for instance, every four years um, to elect a new president. And, you know, for part of that time, the, the cycle is uh, basically entirely gridlocked. So actually, the, the timescales on which decisions have to be made and implemented is really rather short. And the argument is that actually philanthropy has the ability to take a much longer time scale because it doesn't have to operate within the political uh, cycle and it doesn't necessarily have to meet the short-term needs of the market. Um, and that can be a huge benefit in terms of trying out things that are riskier because the benefits perhaps won't be felt for that much longer. So actually that kind of ability to be patient in terms of the application of capital um, or in terms of the kind of expectation of delivery of outcomes can be potentially, I think, a real benefit when it comes to being innovative. Um, and I guess also in terms of uh, motivations, I mean, you know, the motivation for philanthropy, as we've discussed before on the podcast, is uh, extremely complex because it's essentially at an individual level based on kind of a very broad range of personal factors that can be everything from kind of subconscious biases to religious upbringing to, um, you know, peer pressure and all these kinds of things. And actually, that doesn't necessarily mean that it will be more innovative. Again, as we will see a bit later on, some philanthropy has been criticised for precisely the opposite reason. But in the right circumstances, with the right blend of motivations, I think it can make it possible that philanthropic um, approaches to a problem can be that much more innovative. So coming back on to um, you know, what it might mean for philanthropy actually to be innovative, well, I guess the, the first thing to think of, going back to Beveridge's quote, is assume that we know what cause we're talking about. Can we argue that a philanthropically funded approach or a voluntary approach um, can find sort of new ways of addressing that cause to, to deliver better outcomes? Um, uh, and so I think, you know, the, to, to take an example here again, the, the historian Betsy Rogers who wrote a book called Cloak of Charity made a claim in that, which I think is a good sort of summation of this view, which is, Voluntary societies can venture an experiment where a government department will only prevaricate and, and elude. And, and she thought this meant that while early philanthropists had faults and weaknesses, they were pioneers who often influenced the course of history. So this is basically the argument that um, actually philanthropy um, it can fund things in a way that is hugely innovative because it can kind of take that risk and therefore experiment and find new ways of doing things. And I guess we've seen this in lots of places, so in approaches to, to kind of medical care. Here in the UK, even though we've got the structure of the NHS that takes responsibility for providing that kind of social safety net, actually there's still a huge amount of work in terms of medical research um, and delivering services to patients that is done through philanthropic funding or via voluntary means um, and often you know a large part of that is about kind of experimenting with 
different ways of doing things. Um, and one of the, the key benefits, I think, that philanthropy might bring to the table here is that it isn't tied to the kind of existing silos of funding that you find, particularly in the public sector, which is, you know, governments have usually decided to set themselves up along particular lines and there are departments who have budgets. Whereas actually the reality is at an individual level, when it comes to solving pretty much any social or you know health problem that you'd care to mention, if you look at the individual, there's going to be a huge number of cross-cutting needs that actually you know don't fit neatly into those those sort of um, public uh, sector silos. Uh, and so actually, if you want to address the needs of the individual in the round, you're probably going to be working with multiple different departments and calling on multiple different budgets, and often a lot gets lost between the gaps. Whereas actually what philanthropy can do is if it is fundamentally kind of just interested in a particular cohort of people or solving a particular problem for those people, actually there's nothing to stop it kind of taking into account all of these different elements that might sort of in the public sector cut across budgets but in for a philanthropic funder can all be seen as part of its mission so you know i think that's a very powerful thing that it can bring to the table um i guess that you know i don't want to linger on kind of making a case that philanthropy can be innovative um particularly in regard to uh kind of relation to state services um, let's assume for a moment that we sort of broadly buy that argument there are a couple of questions that, that i want to focus on well Firstly, I guess, is what what is the purpose of the innovation in this case? If what we're talking about is kind of taking a cause that we already acknowledge is something that is, you know, uh, of public concern or public value uh, and kind of finding new ways of, of delivering it. And the question here really, to my mind, is, well, what's the exit from the point of view of philanthropy? So you you've found a new way of doing something or a new intervention or a new model for kind of delivering better outcomes is the idea you know for philanthropy then to continue to do that in perpetuity instead of the state well in most cases i'd argue that's definitely not going to be feasible because as we've you know i think discussed before on the podcast the amounts of money you're talking about when it comes to philanthropy in no way match up with the levels of public expenditure um, in any one uh, around any one cause so actually you know the the two things are you comparing apples and pears really um i think i meant to say apples and oranges there because apples and pears is just cockney rhyming slam the stairs but i knew what i meant but anyway the um so you're kind of you're comparing two different um things there so actually i don't think it's about sort of philanthropy showing that it can do it better and then being left to get on with it usually the idea has been to demonstrate a new approach to something and then scale it up in some way um, now either that is through uh, philanthropic approaches themselves being scaled up which immediately raises all sorts of challenges about how you fund that how you kind of take things from one area and replicate them elsewhere or you know whether what model you used to do that or probably more historically what it's been about is convincing the government or the state that this approach is better and then getting them to adopt that and that's certainly a pattern that has been seen in you know everything from education to healthcare and and you know pretty much any area of public service certainly in the uk um 
so you know I, th- I think that's kind of a question to keep in mind is sort of what's what's the exit in terms of innovation and then another question that i just want to throw into the mix to finish this first segment is whether philanthropy sort of genuinely still in this day and age has any kind of unique claim uh, on being innovative because i think sometimes it's sort of easy to say that philanthropy is innovative and we've kind of assumed for this section that we buy that argument broadly but increasingly you know a lot of um uh, innovation around social issues is coming from totally different places so you know the tech sector is very noticeable nowadays for seeing itself as having a sort of broader social and environmental mission and a lot of what it is doing is not kind of working with the traditional philanthropy or civil society uh, sector to do that. It's just coming up with its own solutions that uh, are either quasi-commercial or use the same technology that's being developed commercially and putting it to social ends. Um, similarly, I don't think that you should that we should too lazily sort of assume that the public sector is incapable of innovation. Um, and that actually, you know, the private sector or the philanthropic sector is much better and has to to move ahead of it. There's nothing really inherently to to stop the public sector being innovative. Yes, you know, there are kind of structural problems, some of which we've highlighted about kind of siloed funding and kind of risk culture and everything. But you know, there are there are also interesting counter arguments to be made. One that I think is relevant is um, the work of Mariana Mazzucato, who's an, an economist. And one book she wrote a, a couple of years ago was called The Entrepreneurial State. And, and this focuses on the relationship between state funding and sort of tech innovation. But her point is actually, when you look at most big tech innovations for the last you know, 30 years and, and more, actually none of them would have got off the ground if it hadn't been for sort of huge state funding and subsidy for the the early stages of R&D. So actually, the idea that that kind of the state sits there waiting around for somebody else to innovate or kind of just, you know, needlessly presses on with things that it knows don't work is is just not quite right. And so actually, I think, you know, the the question of the the role of philanthropy in terms of innovating state provision, we need to think about in a much more nuanced fashion. Okay, well, that brings that section to a close. Um, I think in the next section, what I want to go on is just think about um, the way in which philanthropy itself um, has been innovated over time and kind of a couple examples of that. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so we're back. Um, yeah, run pretty long in that first section, so I'll try and keep this one nice and tight. Um, so yeah, in this one, I just want to think about the the way in which innovation has kind of been applied to philanthropy itself and the act of kind of supporting causes and giving to causes um, and the way in which civil society and philanthropic organisations operate. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's vital that civil society and philanthropy do keep evolving um, to try and reflect the changing nature of needs outside and the, you know, the changing nature of markets and the impact of technology and all these sorts of things. And this goes back to the very early days um, of, you know, what we could feasibly call modern philanthropy. So I think, you know, it's worth flagging up that things that we now take for granted are were actually at the time hugely innovative. So the very idea of a charity or a kind of non-profit organization was a huge innovation so 
traditionally the model of um, charitable giving or philanthropy was essentially based around kind of person to person transfers of money. Um, historically, that was kind of religiously motivated alms giving. Um, uh, certainly in the UK, kind of in medieval times when Catholicism was the main religion. Um, and then, as I think we discussed in last week's um, uh, episode on religion, actually the shift towards Protestantism started to kind of the ball rolling towards a more secular interpretation of philanthropy. Um, and, you know, that had a huge impact on the kind of the way in which philanthropy developed. Um, but one of the things that that really kind of had an impact beyond that was the, the Industrial Revolution and the change from a largely kind of agrarian agricultural economy in the UK to um, a more industrialised economy. Um, and what that meant for philanthropy was as people and communities moved into cities, the nature of poverty sort of fundamentally changed. Um, and the the sort of scale of the problems that were being faced, you know, as people started to live in slum accommodation and, and the kind of the nature of the health problems that were seen, the, the old methods of philanthropy that were based on kind of an individual, a well-meaning individual, personally getting to grips with the problem and knowing who all the individuals who were kind of in need were and making decisions about how to give to them didn't really apply any longer. And there's lots of kind of interesting historical sources about how overwhelmed a lot of philanthropists felt within these urban environments. And so what they started to do was to think about whether they could come together in some way to try and kind of share the burden of determining how best to approach uh, addressing social problems and how best to kind of distribute money to, to try and you know address those problems. Um, and at the, at the same time, so this is kind of in the early 1700s largely, and it, the, the development of this uh, of the charitable organisation is largely seen over the 18th century. Um, the, in the, the commercial sphere, they were inventing the Joint Stock Corporation, which is the kind of the earliest form of what we would now think of as a kind of the company structure. So there people were coming together to sort of pool stock. Uh, and assets in order to kind of work together and so creating the company structure well the idea of associational philanthropy came around in the same way so people kind of got together and created a structure and increasingly started to appoint professionals to kind of manage that structure both financially and in terms of you know the understanding of social issues um, and lo, the um, the kind of the charitable organisation was born, and that was a you know it was a, a massive innovation that has kind of shaped non profit uh, world and approaches to philanthropy ever since. Um, and then you know another innovation, for instance, I think you know philanthropy for a very long time was largely seen as the preserve of very wealthy people, and one of the big shifts over the twentieth century in the UK and the US and elsewhere. Um, is about the democratization of giving. So uh, certainly here in the UK, we kind of, um, for various reasons, you know, the development of uh, sort of big disaster appeals and kind of charities um, approaches to fundraising were more based on getting smaller amounts of money from uh, a much larger number of people and kind of appealing to the person in the street rather than a small pool of very wealthy donors was a big innovation. And the same, I think, is true um, in the US, certainly Oliver Zunz's book on um, uh, philanthropy in America um, is, you know, very much kind of charts that trend over the 20th century. And that, again, you know, had a, it kind of marks a, 
a huge difference in terms of the the donor base and the sort of nature of philanthropy because if it's no longer something that's about a very small number of wealthy people who particularly in the UK you know represented a, a particular kind of social class determining how money is is allocated to social good and instead what we're talking about is kind of broad based movements or organizations that tap into kind of wide range of different donors that is a big difference um i mean other ways in which innovation has uh, has occurred um well one we i flagged up or mentioned that i was going to talk about earlier is the idea that you can combine um, philanthropic motives with um, profit motives. So, you know, we see nowadays the rise of things like social investment or impact investing, which um, various different kind of approaches fit under those umbrella terms. But the idea basically is that you're trying to kind of uh, blend the financial motivation with um, with the desire to, to deliver social outcomes. And this is often presented as if it's something kind of radical and, and innovative. And, you know, a lot of what's done in that space is absolutely great. But it's also worth saying that it's not new. <laughs> so not that every innovation necessarily needs to be new, but it but it's definitely not new. So there have been kind of people who have um, combined uh, commercial approaches and philanthropic approaches for hundreds of years. So. Um, there was a famous donor in um, uh, London in the 17th century, I think, called Robert Thurman, um, who became very well known um, for his knowledge of the kind of the social issues of the day. And in fact, one thing that, that um, other philanthropists used to do was come to him and basically ask them to kind of manage their giving on their behalf. So uh, he got bestowed with this title of Almoner General for the Poor. But the other thing that he did beyond that, which was really interesting, was he would set up companies where he would employ seamstresses and others um, who couldn't find work otherwise, um, but would uh, essentially run those companies at a loss in order to provide employment. And in his writings about these projects, he basically um, kind of was avert in that he saw this as a form of philanthropy because the loss would be a kind of you know he would see that that negative return as as uh, as a kind of philanthropic donation um and in terms of that question of exit the interesting thing is though those projects eventually petered out because he, his aim was to try and show that this was a a kind of low cost way for the state potentially to provide subsidized employment and therefore sort of deal with problems of, of urban unemployment and poverty but but he never had any success on that front unfortunately and then an even more well-known historical example of um a kind of blended approaches it can be found in the sort of late victorian era around housing philanthropy which is you know it's far too complex to go into in detail but essentially a couple of models of um percentage philanthropy emerged sort of four percent and five percent philanthropy where rich donors and there were some big names here like george peabody and edward guinness and octavia hill and others um built social housing a lot of which is still with us today um and it was sort of philanthropically motivated or sort of had to be because it wouldn't have been commercially viable but what they did then was charge a below market rate um 
for uh, people to, you know, social tenants to go and live in those. So it was kind of, they called it often philanthropy plus 4% because they would get some sort of return on it. Um, and so the idea was that they could, you know, alongside other, other more traditional philanthropy that almost all of them were doing, this was a way of kind of having another approach within their toolkit that was perhaps slightly more sustainable because they were allowing the recycling of money. And it's interesting to think, you know, where where the kind of modern um, analogues of that are, or, where, or indeed where things might be going in the future. So I think, you know, a few examples, um, you know, in the world of volunteering, traditionally, one of the things that that's required is a very heavy time commitment. But actually, there's lots of approaches now around micro-volunteering, where people are sort of able, using technology, to volunteer kind of very small slices of their time when it suits them. And that's potentially a kind of huge um change in the way that volunteering works um i think also in terms of charitable giving you know a similar thing uh, applies which is you know we've already talked about the democratization of giving but what we're starting to see now is potentially a kind of new marketplace opening up for micro giving or even nano or pico giving so things like um round to the pound initiatives are interesting where you basically what you do there you when you pay on a card or other kind of electronic form of money and it's a not a round number the idea is that you you there's a system in place which says do you want to just round that up to the nearest pound or dollar and then that bit will go to charity and obviously that's now possible because the technological infrastructure can sort of make that happen automatically so from the donor's point of view it's frictionless um, and in the future, you know, I think this could happen even more. We're inevitably going to be making more electronic payments. And I think, you know, also, um, I think I've said before that, you know, the development of the, the Internet of Things, so this sort of huge network of interconnected, internet-enabled smart objects, is probably going to give rise to a machine-to-machine economy where they are transacting directly with each other in sort of very small um amounts of money so we're going to have this entirely new marketplace of kind of very low vol very low value but extremely high volume transactions and actually if you want to get a charitable element to that it's going to look very different to traditional charitable giving or philanthropy um and i guess the the question i'm just going to throw in here to to end this section is whether there's a, a downside to to that innovation. Now, I'm I'm not against uh, sort of micro giving or micro donations or sort of frictionless giving, but I think it's a really interesting question to think through about whether there is a danger to reducing the friction of giving so much that it sort of loses the the element of sacrifice that a lot of people think is necessary for something to be genuine philanthropy. So. Actually, if it becomes so easy for people to give that they basically do it without even noticing, what will that mean in terms of the overall amount of money available for good causes and how much people engage with them? I mean, arguably, if this is just something that happens on top of more traditional giving, that's great. But what I'd be really interested to know, and I think there's not a huge amount of evidence about this yet, is whether... If people are giving in these more frictionless ways through random to the pound or sort of micro donations, does that kind of tick any of the psychological boxes in terms of the overall amount of giving they're doing and therefore kind of cannibalize that traditional pot? Because that to me would be a concern. But as I say, it's kind of I think there's a lot more evidence needed to, to kind of test some of those assertions. Okay, so that brings this section to a close. And then in the last section, I want to look at the other way in which um, I think philanthropy 
is um, sort of most interestingly innovative, and that is in its ability to bring entirely new causes to public attention and kind of shift uh, society forward in that way. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so we're back. Um, And again, yeah, ran uh, pretty long in that section as well. Uh, So I'm going to do my best uh, in this section to keep it really tight because I don't want to have to go back and edit this because I absolutely hate audio editing. Uh, So let's try and uh, keep this nice and sharp. So yeah, in this section, what I want to do is just talk about the way in which I think philanthropy is innovative in terms of the role it plays in changing public perception about issues or bringing issues to light in the first place. So this essentially goes back to something, you know, I've kind of said, I think many times on the podcast and elsewhere about the value that, that there is in the campaigning role of philanthropy and civil society, not just the role it plays in terms of direct um, service delivery. And I think that kind of cycle when it comes to social problems of things moving from total lack of public awareness to something being on the margin um, to something that kind of uh, where a groundswell of public support develops to something that becomes a kind of mainstream issue for for political concern to uh, one where you know it actually comes up for legislation and eventual kind of true social change um, is is kind of um, delivered is one where philanthropy plays a key role particularly I think in that early stage um, of kind of bringing things to public intention in the first place and developing a groundswell of support um, I just think there's a really good quote here from Um, a charity reformer called Thomas Hare, who gave a speech to the Social Science Congress in 1869 uh, on these grounds, talking about the importance of philanthropy. And he said, I regard endowments as an important element in the experimental branches of political and social science. No doubt the nation at large may take on itself the cost of such tentative efforts, but this involves taxation, and the assent of the majority to increase taxes could not be justly demanded by philanthropists or projectors, and certainly would not be obtained until their speculations had taken such a hold upon the public mind as no longer to require an exceptional support or propagation. The most important steps in human progress may be opposed to the prejudices, not only of the multitude, but even of the learned and leaders of thought in a particular epoch. And I think that's a really good way of framing it, because that's sort of the point, isn't it, is that you know, uh, philanthropy, when it plays this campaigning role, that's what it has done. You know, time and time again, it has kind of taken issues that weren't on the radar of the general public or people kind of had very negative views on has kind of over time changed views on those that has resulted in uh, real sort of meaningful change. And it's obvious to think of examples, you know, in the UK and beyond where this has uh, resulted in kind of changes that have really shaped the society that we live in today so the eventual abolition of slavery for instance the extension of uh, the vote to the working class universal suffrage for women um, the ending of child labor um, the development of gay lesbian bisexual rights um, the the eventual introduction of a smoking ban here on public health grounds um, the the kind of the clean air act which did away with um, air pollution in cities all of these you know they weren't solely driven by philanthropy or civil society but there was a huge element of uh, philanthropic involvement certainly in those early stages of making these causes that developed a sufficient groundswell of support that eventually legislative um, or kind of social change um, was affected Um, and so you know 
the point to be made there, I think, uh, as I've made many times before, is just to acknowledge that that campaigning role of philanthropy is absolutely vital if it is to be innovative and that it must be protected at all costs because I think that ability of charities and other non-profits to kind of campaign on issues and to speak truth to power and to raise awareness is an absolutely vital part of the role that they play within any healthy democracy you know alongside an independent judiciary and a free press and it, it really does need to be preserved um i guess the the interesting question that, that i want to ask uh, you know and try and keep this section reasonably brief is what that looks like when you don't have the benefit of hindsight so it's very easy to look back at things like um you know the abolition of slavery or the ending of child labor because um you know those arguments were won and we now live in you know in a country in a world well sadly not all around the world where all of those things um are you know are no longer problematic but but actually you know history is written by the victors um in many ways and it's sort of easy to to take a whiggish view which is you know assuming that this was the only way things could have ended up um but actually if we're standing in the here and now and thinking about well what are the problems that philanthropy is addressing now that perhaps are not kind of publicly accepted and where is philanthropy playing that difficult role of sort of bringing things to public attention against you know the the wider will of people well i, I think actually it's sort of quite often those <laughs> those are reasonably controversial so i mean one example that i would flag up is around the the way in which a lot of silicon valley philanthropists approach their philanthropy so there's there's an interesting thread um within silicon valley of people who are major philanthropists or at least kind of profess an interest in philanthropic um uh sort of activities but like but a lot of what they're also interested in is sort of longer term uh future threats and existential threats to, to a lot of people look a bit like science fiction or um kind of a bit frivolous so people like larry page the google founder or elon musk or yuri milner have put enormous amounts of money into developing space travel now arguably that could be sort of one of the most philanthropic things that's ever been done if it eventually uh results in feasible low-cost mass you know uh, space travel for the human race and thereby solve some of our problems with um you know what we're doing to our own planet although i'm not sure the answer to that personally is for us to run off and ruin another one but that's a topic for a totally different podcast um but the other you know the flip side of that is equally there are a lot of people who criticize that sort of philanthropy or those sorts of interests on the grounds that well you know there's a lot of people suffering around the world right now that could benefit from the help of some of these multi-billionaires through their philanthropy and actually that philanthropy would be better placed addressing some of those problems in the here and now and you know to me that's a, a sort of a difficult question um because you know we've sort of been making a case that actually philanthropy should be about innovation and pushing things forward but where the balance is between what is perceived as self-indulgence uh, and what is actually kind of visionary, innovative philanthropy that's going against the grain is very difficult to call, I think, when you're standing in the middle of it and you don't have the benefit of historical perspective. Um, and interestingly, on that sort of Silicon Valley uh, tech philanthropist note, one thing that's worth uh, flagging up is that Jeff Bezos, or Bezos, I'm never quite sure how you're supposed to say it, the, the Amazon founder, who is now, I think, the richest man in the world, um, 
sort of had a big uh, metaphorical drum roll uh, earlier this year around an announcement of what he was going to do with his philanthropy because he sort of up to that point it hadn't been that notable he was obviously doing plenty I think but he made a sort of big play of the fact he was going to announce his philanthropic strategy um, and first of all he went and kind of crowdsourced or tried to engage people democratically via Twitter um, to get ideas for what he should do with it um, which again in some ways is very positive given that philanthropy is criticized for being you know anti-democratic often um, but he got sort of pilloried for that and people said that you know well he should really know what he's going to, to do with that money so why was he asking people on Twitter but then when the announcement came out he also got quite a bit of criticism in various quarters for the fact that he was choosing to focus largely on homelessness and other kind of quite traditional social problems and you know putting quite large amounts of money although arguably in relation to his overall fortune not this you know not as large as they could be amounts of money to work but you know the point a lot of people were making was if if you know a multi-billion dollar philanthropist who comes from a tech background and has created one of the most successful innovative tech companies in history can't think of something more innovative to do with his own philanthropy then that seems like a bit of a failure but then going to this question that we're, we're raising of whether where the balance is between self-indulgence and uh and innovation well it seems like you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't a little bit if you're a philanthropist because if you do something too innovative people think it's frivolous or self-indulgent and if you do something that's already accepted by the mainstream it's seen as you know conventional or lacking in in ambition um and interestingly you know that again um as i'm sure you won't be surprised to hear um if you're somebody who listens to this podcast is a, a sort of historical uh charge that's been leveled at philanthropy as well so it's interesting to note that in you know the, the victorian era in the uk often gets held up as the kind of peak of uk philanthropy um, but actually, there was quite a lot of dissatisfaction amongst commentators at the time that although the amounts of philanthropy were large, um, what was being done with it was actually kind of quite lacking in ambition or imagination. So um, there was an article in the Times um, that said uh, it was inclined to credit American testators, so people who left money in a bequest, with greater liberality and more interesting ideas than their British counterparts. The bulk of British bequests, the editor insisted, came from childless persons with no family responsibilities and went for pretty conventional objects. So, you know, it's I think the the charge against philanthropy that it is kind of lacking in ambition or, or um, is kind of unimaginative is a particularly damaging one. Um, and, you know, this is something I think that philanthropy probably needs to, to guard against with uh, a view to the future. Um but you know the the challenge you know as we've already highlighted here is how to maintain that kind of innovative position that i think largely is one of the key ways that we can justify the role of philanthropy and the value it brings um in modern society against you know the charge that by choosing to focus on things that most people think are far fetched or frivolous actually philanthropy is being undemocratic or kind of wasting its value um and you know quite <laughs> quite how one uh, addresses that in in the long run uh, i don't know you know i think the fact that criticism has been around for hundreds of years shows that it's one of those ongoing challenges with philanthropy that just needs to be managed if you're going to do it successfully 
Okay, so there we are. I've got to the end. I've run quite long. I might not edit it. Let's see. Um, anyway, it just remains to be said, you know, if you've been interested in the stuff I've been saying here, I'll put some links up in the show notes to various bits and pieces that I've mentioned. Um, if you're more widely interested in um, my thoughts on philanthropy and uh, all those sorts of things, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Uh, obviously subscribe to this podcast go back and check out all 35 uh, previous episodes that we've got there now Uh, like subscribe uh, share with all your friends and other than that i'll see you next time okay bye